unless you believe that the proof of work coin is going to have like a massive amount of value in the high billions. I don't think that it actually makes sense to deploy this trade anymore. There's a lot of opportunities that I could see as being more profitable. So I've just finished recording a podcast with Matthew Feedback, who is one of the research analysts at Blockwork Research. If you're not familiar with Blockworks Research, essentially big investors like Morgan Stanley, Bitwise, Ray Dalio's Bridgewater, as well as big hedge funds like Brevin Howard, all use Blockworks Research to give insights into where they should invest across the crypto ecosystem. And more specifically, Matt works within the DeFi arm of Blockworks Research. This is a truly humbling conversation. It's probably my favorite podcast recording that I've done because we talk about everything from the Ethereum merge to DYDX's move onto the Cosmos chain. We talk about GMX and different perpetual swap providers, as well as Frax and their offering of Frax Lend, as well as Frax ETH. We talk about some relative value trades in the DeFi ecosystem, such as long synthetics and short OP, as well as getting into the technical details behind why Matt is a little bit cautious on the merge. There's tons of valuable content in here. There's lots of uh, name dropping of tokens and projects that they're looking at. And I hope you really enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed recording it with Matt. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Matthew Feedback, who is on the Blockworks research team. How are you today, Matt? I'm good. How are you, Huff? I'm really well. I'm so glad we connected earlier in the week because we were we were just chatting all things DeFi and, and we both ran out of time. So hopefully today is just an extension of the first time time we met. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat again. Indeed. So maybe a good junction to tell us a little bit about yourself, Matt, and about Blockworks and how you fit in to the organization. Sure. So my name is Matt Feeback. I'm a research analyst at Blockworks Research. I just graduated from the University of Miami, where I studied computer science and finance. I've been interested in crypto for about five, six years now. Pretty much all the work and internships I've done so far in life have been in crypto. So that includes analyst roles at a hedge fund, a venture capital fund, a DeFi, a DAP, and a Web3 infrastructure company. And now I work at Blockworks Research. First of all, I guess I'll introduce Blockworks. Blockworks is a media site. So they have editorials, podcasts, and editorial podcasts and events. The editorial site is pretty cool. There's a lot of great news. There's a lot of great journalists who write articles about whatever's going on at any given time, everything crypto related. The podcast is an entire network. So that includes Empire on the margin and a bunch more. And then we have events such as Permissionless, Digital Asset Summit, or DAS, which is coming up in about two, three weeks. And yeah, so the editorial site, a kind of Blockworks whole thing is that we connect Web2 and TradFi to Web3 and DeFi. But Blockworks Research is a little different. So about a couple months ago, we spun up, we launched Blockworks Research. Blockworks Research is all about investable insights and data. We're a little more in the weeds, so we kind of spend all of our time in governance forums and discords, telegrams, and just try to get it alpha pretty much that we can then relay to our subscribers. Amazing. And how long has the Blockworks Research offering been around and how many people are on the team? We launched in May and we currently have five analysts and a data analyst. All the analysts are also pretty proficient in data analysis. Excellent. So today's going to be a good juncture to talk about everything that you guys are seeing in the DeFi space and, and what kind of trends and themes you guys are particularly interested in. And so perhaps we could kick off there and you could talk about your most recent article. What was the what or, or report rather? What was the title and, and what was the kind of thesis there? 
Sure. So yesterday we released my report on the Sushi Maiji upgrade. Sushi Maiji is going to completely revamp Sushi's tokenomics to look a lot like Curve. So it's going to implement a vote escrow token called Osushi, Osushi holder. So like, you know, you, you lock your Osushi for a period between a month and four years. The longer you lock it for, the more Osushi you get. Osushi would be the equivalent of VECRV. Osushi then gives you the rights to distribute 90% of protocol revenue. So Sushi's protocol revenue comes from 0.05% of every trade goes back to the protocol. So that will be then be used to buy Sushi. And along with the rest of Sushi emissions or inflation will be given out to LPs as voted on by the Osushi holders. One thing that's really cool about the Sushi Maiji upgrade, that's a big difference between uh, you know the, the vote escrow CRV model is that they're actually going to separate out protocol governance from those O sushi holders. So if in, you can instead opt to lock up your sushi for Maiji shares instead of O sushi, and this gives you rights to have control over the protocol. So and the the Maiji DAO, so which will, will be, be controlled by Maiji shares, will receive thirty percent of the remaining emissions and ten percent of protocol revenue, with the rest going to O sushi. Why would anyone join the MyG? Why would anyone join the MyG DAO when you know most of the emissions are going to go to the vote escrow token Osushi or be controlled by? Well, it's that that's because the MyG DAO is really for contributors. So those looking to research or develop new tooling or anything like that, those people will choose to lock their sushi for MyG DAO shares. Another cool thing is that the MyG DAO isn't just one token, one vote. It follows a quadratic formula, meaning the more you lock up, the less power you have. Well, you have more power, but the you know scaling less power. So basically, if you lock up more shares, you know every additional token you lock is going to have less power than the prior one. This means that whales see diminishing power. Also, the total members have like as total members increases, the number of shares you get per sushi decreases. So this helps stop cyber attacks. And for those that that want to read a little bit more, that's Myji spell M E I J I. Am I correct? Correct. And the governance proposal was titled the Sushi Maiji Restoration. Excellent. And so this this kind of overhaul of not only its revenue model, but also its voting process as well. Do you think that will take Sushi into a place where it can be even more competitive with the other DEXs? I'm thinking about Uniswap in particular. So I hope so, right? It, in the, Sushi's kind of fallen behind to Uniswap and Curve recently by TVL and volume. Back in the day when Sushi first launched and was a vampire attack on Uniswap, you know, it saw a real, real TVL accrual. It took a, a lot of liquidity from Uniswap and it seemed like it, it was actually going to be a competitor. Since then, it has uh, kind of fallen behind. I do believe that the Maiji restoration, if the vote passes, it's expected to go for a vote post-merge. So sometime after September 15th, if the Sushi propo- if the Maiji proposal does pass... I believe that it's a great start for Sushi getting back to the forefront of DEXs and being able to compete with Uniswap and Curve. But there are definitely still a few barriers they face. When you look at Curve and their vote escrow model, they have an entire ecosystem built with Convex, which is an aggregator that does a lot of the, the time-intensive processes for you. It also like maximizes the profit you get for holding your VECRV. So Sushi will definitely need to partner with an aggregator like Convex in order for their model to succeed. And even if all goes well on all these fronts, SushiSwap does still deploy the Uniswap V2 AMM model, which potentially is not going to be able to compete with Curve and Uniswap, who have deployed more capital efficient models. But Sushi is working on stuff to, to circumvent that. So stuff like the Trident AMM and then also like Kashi and Bento Box, 
they have a lot going on where they're 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 doing their best to make sure that they will compete but the product today doesn't does does not in my opinion interesting so there'll be there'll be vote escrow gauges and, and the like i imagine as well yeah exactly osushi gauges basically yeah, it'll be so there'll be gauges that LPs are able to deposit into. So you know, you provide liquidity to a pair, and then you get your LP token. You deposit your LP token into a gauge, and then Osushi will use the gauge controller to vote. So they'll vote for different pools, and depending on the distribution of votes, that'll be that will lead to pools getting or gauges getting more of the emissions. And so let's let's talk about the work. Flow here, Matthew. So Sushi put out this proposal called the Maiji Restoration. You obviously are relatively quick as a research analyst to digest that. What takes place in the research process from your perspective then once you've you've read the kind of document? What happens next? Yeah, so I guess even before that, right, it kind of starts in Discords and governance forums, also crypto Twitter, but a lot of a lot of my job is kind of trying to beat the narrative before it hits crypto Twitter. So I spend a lot of time in discords and governance forums. And when there's a really interesting discussion that pops up, such as this one, this one, generally speaking, I'll, I'll do a deep dive. I'll look into other stuff that exists that's similar, and then I'll just get right to writing. One, one big thing that BlockWorks Research tries to provide is very good data visualizations for stuff going on. So, you know, we look, we'll, we'll do stuff like create the graphs of Total, total protocol revenue that Sushi's had over the last couple of years. We'll look at Sushi versus CRV and if it'll be able to compete given the amount of value that'll actually be going to these gauges, stuff like that. And then the, the report will launch. So this kind of report will be a little bit shorter when it's just a, a governance update. But then we also do like extremely deep dive, deep dive reports that might be more like 10, 15 pages long. And then that'll look at stuff like, you know, the landscape of the derivatives market, the landscape of the on-chain derivatives market or layer twos and roll-ups or, you know, a bigger topic of that nature. Understood. This is this is super interesting. So you, you guys, like you said, are trying to beat the news. A lot of your job involves getting close to the communities behind behind these protocols. So that raises the question, do you how do you split your role between the five analysts? Do you look at a particular subsection of DeFi or is everybody kind of just pulled together and, and looking at anything interesting and then and then you kind of take your pick of the projects and protocols that you're individually going to look at. Yeah, so we do have protocol specific coverage, meaning every analyst is responsible. So we have about 30 covered assets. These are DeFi and layer ones that we we believe will possibly have long term value and, uh, you know, have a place in the future of crypto. We don't cover all like, you know, it's not just the top 30 assets. We do ignore We do choose to not cover some such as, you know, maybe like a Tron or what you know, just some assets that we don't see as much interesting development occurring in. So out of the 25 or 30 assets we have, we have them split up between the five analysts. So I'm personally in charge of covering the Avalanche ecosystem, DYDX, Uniswap, and SushiSwap. But outside of that, I am I do have the ability to look. So like if anything is going on in those ecosystems, big governance updates, interesting discussions occurring in the Discord, I'm on top of it. So, you know, I have to be, that's definitely part of my job. But outside of that, I do also, you know, have the ability to go write about other stuff, other stuff that I think is interesting. So, for instance, recently I wrote about credit protocols. So that would be, you know, what what's formerly former formerly known as under collateralized lending, uh, or the credit protocol space. You know, these protocols that use real world assets or off chain assets in order to provide loans to companies. So that would be stuff like Maple, Goldfinch, Teller, TrueFi. So I like wrote a report about that because it's a space I'm extremely interested in. 
or options vaults. So like programmatic options vaults and on-chain options. That was another report I wrote. And then like Delta neutral staking was another one that just kind of had nothing to do with the assets I cover. But Delta neutral staking is pretty interesting. It's all about the idea that you can long and short, you can long spot and short synthetically equal amounts of a staking token. And then you're able to receive the, the staking rewards without having any exposure to the price movements. There's definitely risks involved, but it's an interesting trade for sure. Well, let's get into some of those if you're if you're happy to do so, Matt. So I think our listeners will be particularly interested in delta neutral staking. So perhaps you could give us a run through of, of that research report you wrote and some of the key takeaways from that as well. Yeah, so delta neutral staking is all about, like I said, kind of having no price exposure while getting the, the rewards for the staking rewards. So if you look at a token like Cosmos, Cosmos is Atom. It has, last time I checked, about a 17% annualized return for staking. So basically what the trade would employ would be you would get long, let's say $10,000 in Atom, and then you'd synthetically short $10,000 in Atom. So that can be done via perpetual futures. That can be done via a over-collateralized loan on a lending platform. You can generally get an OTC loan if it's in enough size. Anyways, once you have that delta neutral position, meaning an equal amount long and short, you're now pocketing that 17% a year Cosmos, quote unquote, free lunch. There are definitely risks involved, though. So, for instance, if you're if the way that you short the short the token, short Cosmos in this case, is is a floating rate. So meaning that the amount changes, whether it be hourly or daily or weekly, that the, the interest rate for your borrow it might be the trade may become not worth it because if that borrow rate or that funding rate is above 17%, you're now losing money. Another issue that arises from this trade is like Cosmos specifically has a 21 day unstate. I believe it, it takes 21 days to vest your staking position, meaning from when you actually stop staking Cosmos until you actually have the ability to go close that position is 21 days. So there's definitely risks involved. Other, other, other risks would be like, if you're not doing this with a proof of stake token, if you're doing this with a token like looks rare, or ex-sushi, because these are both tokens that are quote-unquote staking, but they're, they're not actually proof of stake. You stake them for a return, but you stake them in a smart contract. Well, now you have smart contract risk. So there's definitely you know risks involved, but as long as you understand the risks and can quantify them and see if the trade is worth it, it could definitely still be a worthwhile trade. More recently, we saw a lot of people doing something very similar with the merge trade. So the way it worked was someone would long spot meaning buy Ethereum just on the market and short the, in this case, a lot of people chose to short the quarterly futures on Darabit. The reason that people were doing this was in hopes that there was going to be a proof of work Ethereum airdrop fork, meaning that when ETH went proof of stake, there was still going to be some value in the proof of work token in the, that, you know, there's a lot of talk about this fork that's going to occur. It probably still will. How much value that network actually has is unknown. But if you have delta neutral exposure, your 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 airdrop or fork would technically be, you know, just given to you on top of it. So there's hopefully lots of offsetting, there. hopefully offsetting the funding cost. Yeah, exactly. Sure. And in the case of it was it was interesting because in the case of the quarterly futures, they actually started trading in backwardation, meaning that the like to have exposure to the quarter the quarterly future that I believe expires in December you were actually, you had to pay a premium in order to get, so it's trading at a discount to spot, which is generally not the case because there is incentives due to interest rates that it should actually be trading at a premium above. Interesting. And is that a trade which you think is still viable going into the merge? I know a lot of people have been putting that trade on a lot of crypto funds, as well as a couple of high net worth individuals. Is that something which you guys are 
think is a good strategy or, or would you caution against it? I think the trade got a little bit overcrowded, meaning that there was too, a little too much buzz on Twitter going on about it so that the the discount the discount for the futures actually made it so that it's probably not worthwhile unless you believe that the proof of work for the proof of work coin is going to have like a massive amount of value in the high billions. I don't think that it actually makes sense to deploy this trade anymore. There's a lot in my opinion that there's a lot of opportunities that I would see I could see as being more profitable while still being dealt with. One of the things that, thank you for your your overview there, Matt. One of the things that stood out to me in our conversation was your thoughts with regards to Ethereum and the fact that pre-merge you were you were very bullish Ethereum going into the merge and that view has been somewhat somewhat slowed down recently. Could you explain what your thoughts are with regards to Ethereum right now? Obviously, this is more of a personal opinion rather than a Blockworks opinion per se. But I was I was somewhat not surprised, but I was I was definitely noting your your views on the merge. Yeah, so it was, it was pretty recently. I believe last week time moves pretty crazy in crypto. But so I guess we'll start with proposer builder separation just to give like some introduction to what I'll be talking about. So once Ethereum goes proof of stake, MEV will work a little bit differently. Basically, there'll be three. There's four main players in MEV in proof of stake Ethereum. You have searchers, builders, relayers, and validators. So the way the process works is you have MEV searchers. They look for MEV opportunities. They then pass these MEV opportunities on to builders who put blocks together in the ordering that extracts the most MEV and thus value for validators. So a builder makes a block using all these different searchers, MEV transactions. They build the block that's going to extract the most value, and then they pass it to relayers. Relayers aggregate all these different blocks from block builders and pass them to validators, but obfuscated, meaning validators can't actually see the tra- like the ordering of the transactions. All they can see is the amount of money, the fee that they'll get for the, for using that block. The validator then uses the most the, the block that extracts the most value for them. So this this brings a lot of value on top of the proof of stake rewards in the form of MEV rewards. The problem is about two weeks ago. Tornado Cash got sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. This brought a lot of scary thoughts into the heads of crypto crypto ecosystem participants and Flashbots, the company who's actually making the software called MEV Boost, which will be used for this whole process of block builders, relayers, validators. They decided that their relayer will be censored, meaning their relayer will not include blocks that have transactions to or from sanctioned addresses. This is kind of a huge problem because right now there's not, although it's unknown, there's not an expectation that there'll be other relayers ready at launch. I know that there's a lot of other relayers working on it and they're working full time to make sure they are ready at launch. So that would be projects like Manifold Finance and there's one or two more. And we we should really hope they are. Or I, I really hope they are, because if it's only Flashbots Relayer that's available at Merge, we will basically see a censored Ethereum, meaning anyone who tra- makes transactions to or from sanctioned addresses will not be included in blocks. This is because if validators are only using blocks from Relayers that censor transactions, then block builders will have to stop including those transactions because they'll have an incentive to do so. They receive a little cut off the top of the block they build. So if, you know... If validators aren't willing to use blocks that include censored transactions, let's say 90% of validators use censored relayers, well, now if you include transactions in the blocks you build to or from sanctioned addresses, you're only going to be included in 10% as many blocks, meaning you're going to be making 90 or you're going to be making 
a whole lot less money than you would if you only included, you know, censored blocks. This is a huge problem in my head because one of the main values that Ethereum provides is its permissionlessness. You know, the DeFi ecosystem is a lot is majorly based around the fact that it is decentralized, it's permissionless, it's composable. Now kind of all we're left with is composability if this is the case. Now that's a big if because if enough validators decide to use non-censored relayers such as manifold, well then this is kind of just a mute point and not a huge problem for the ecosystem. So it's all going to be dependent on how much Ethereum decides to support censored relayers. If we do see a lot, like the majority of validators supporting censored relayers, we'll likely see a fork, a user-activated soft fork. So this would lead to something like three Ethereums post-merge. We'd have the proof-of-work fork, which we talked about a second ago that, you know, in my head, I'm, I'm not super interested in. But then we would have the OFAC ETH, which is, you know, the network that would be using, that would have the majority of validators censoring transactions and we have actual proof of stake ETH. If Circle and US you know, Circle, which is USDC and USDT, decide to use you know what I'm calling OFAC ETH, the censored network, well, that means that a lot of the value in DeFi kind of has to stay on that network, and that the fork won't really work. This wasn't true in past you know in the past life cycle of Ethereum. There wasn't this huge reliance on centralized parties. So it's kind of interesting and. You know, I don't think that it's at all guaranteed. I'm not even sure it's likely that that the majority of validators decide to use censored relayers. But the fact that it's a non-zero possibility is extremely worrisome. Thank you for that that overview. And and so Flashbots are deciding to obviously censor their relayers for for anybody that's interacted with those addresses. What is the uphill struggle for Manifold to get ready for the merge? Is it is it something that's feasible in the time? in the three weeks or so that they have. Yeah, so luckily Flashbots did open source the relayer code, which I imagine was extremely helpful for these non-censored relayers. I believe that Flashbots did that on purpose. They probably do not support a censored base layer Ethereum. So they open source their code. It should I in you know I'm not a I'm not building a relayer, so I don't actually know what the overhead looks like, but I would imagine that it went from not a possibility to being a possibility thanks to that open source. And, and this is an interesting theme, right? Because in the past, even just in the past two weeks, we've seen manifold finance go up about 70%, which is likely to continue. And it's still a sub hundred million market cap, market cap project. So something definitely to keep an eye on in the middle where market. Is there anybody else as a kind of Ethereum project that's core in the Ethereum project that you guys have your eyes on? So many, (laughs) so many. (laughs) You know, a lot of people on my team are very excited for what Frax has in the pipeline. So Frax is a stable coin. It's it's not under collateralized, but it's not fully, it's not over collateralized either. It uses an algorithm where dependent on the number of Frax that exist, it becomes more or less collateralized, but they have a lot of cool stuff in the pipeline. So they're supposed to launch Frax Lend and Frax ETH soon. So Frax Lend will be, you know, a lending market similar to Anave or Compound. The docs, I do not believe, are out yet. So there's not too much information known. And then Frax ETH will be a Lido competitor. So similar to ST ETH, they'll be FR, they'll be, you know, FRX ETH. And I think that they have a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Outside of that, you know, I'm particularly I'm particularly interested in a lot of these yield generating tokens so once dydx moves into the cosmos and creates their own layer one i believe that it'll have a lot more value accrual and it's something that i'm keeping a very close eye on actually i'm keeping a close eye on kind of the entire on-chain derivatives landscape 
and not even just perpetual futures, options and options vaults as well. I believe credit protocols, which we brought up priorly, is you know a very interesting topic. And then protocol specific stable coins. So CRV USD, you know, Go, Ave Go, and there'll probably be a bunch more to come. Also, SNX and Urine Finance will both be releasing their V3 soon. So I think those are like kind of narratives I'm keeping an eye on. And then the Uniswap fee switch will be super interesting to see how that goes and if they're able to keep all their liquidity despite having a protocol fee leave from LPs cut. Well, I think the the thing with Uniswap is the bulk of the liquidity for so many token pairs is still on Uniswap. So unless there's a mass migration towards Sushi, which could well happen with some of the some of the proposals that have been put forward, it's going to be interesting to see how the DEX market plays out and then perpetuals on top of that. We are. I'd love to dive into some of these things that you mentioned, so Frax Lens and Frax ETH, as well as uh, talking about the credit protocols and GMX. <laughs> I think our listeners can certainly understand why we could have spoken for hours the other day. If I could just pick up on on Frax ETH for a second, obviously you've got Lido Finance, you've got Rocket Pool. Why does the market need a third staked ETH or liquid staked? This is definitely my own opinion, but Lido has far too much market share of the staked ETH market. I forget exactly what the number was, but it's high digit. You know, it's it's definitely double digit percent of all staked of all of all ether Ethereum that staked is through Lido. This is kind of a huge problem. It pre- it presents a vulnerability threat vector of you know if if like you know similar to kind of the DAO back in 2016. You know where if there's too too many tokens controlled by one entity and it's a smart contract and that smart contract gets hacked, it provides serious problems for the entire ecosystem. So I think I think even Lido would probably agree that having more competitors in this industry is is a good thing overall for the Ethereum network. Also, Frax or Sam Kaz, the founder of of Frax, hinted that there was going to be some novel mechanisms employed between Frax Lend and Frax ETH. I'm not sure exactly what those are because the documentation has not been released yet, but I'm guessing they will provide a novel a novel technique that or novel incentive mechanisms that don't exist with Lido or Rocket Pool. Interesting. And hopefully improving upon some of the issues that we saw with leverage stake ETH using Aave when we saw the unwind of all the three arrow capital positions as well. I'm sure Sam is is best placed to to be building that, him and the team over there. And then just to talk about SNX for a second. So a popular pairs trade that I came across the other day was to be long SNX and short OP, optimism. Obviously, SNX is is on the optimism network. The idea there being that OP is an inflationary token and there's still a lot of net issuance to come out of that, whereas SNX has some positive drivers. Could you talk just very briefly about SNX, what you like about synthetics and, and whether you agree with that pairs trade idea? So I love synthetics. I think it's one of the most promising DeFi protocols that exists. I think that the team has been building for longer than most projects. Their goals have always been extremely large. They've always been going after a big thing. The you know synthetic assets themselves are extremely interesting and valuable and something that we need in DeFi. I also think with the recent launch of Quenta Synthetic, which is a perpetual futures exchange on optimism, synthetics kind of took a big step up. They're planning on listing synthetic, I believe, I believe they're planning on listing synthetic stocks in the near future in V3. This will be another huge step up. Where you, you know you, DeFi is kind of leaving this niche of only being able to trade digital assets into more real world real world use cases. I think that trade is extremely interesting because so actually my my coworker Westy Westy Capital on Twitter he tweeted a really really intensive thread on this yesterday. There's this idea of 
the FAT protocol. So basically, a lot of people think that value accrues to the base layer. So value goes not to the apps that are or dApps built in blockchain, but instead to the base layer that they're built on. So not to Aave, not to Maker, not to Uniswap, but to Ethereum. And this has been a, a thesis that many cite for have, have been citing for a long time. My coworker at Westy thinks that the this thesis is now void, that now we live in an era where it's a fat protocol layer and that a lot of value is going to accrue back to protocols. I actually, although I, I tend to agree with him because he's a giga brain and probably <laughs> smarter than myself, so why would I not listen to him? But, you know, I, I don't have a, a strong belief either way. It's interesting with all the moves to like, you know, a data availability layer with Celestia versus, you know, an execute. I think that we do tend to be moving in the direction where I think more value will accrue to protocols in layer ones. If you look at Cosmos, you know, interchain security is hopefully going to launch by the end of the year. At that point, layer one or application specific blockchains will be paying to rent security from Atom validators. So I do think that there's this kind of almost like a, a battle between where this value is going to accrue to. But I, I would tend to agree that probably being long protocols over base layers right now might be it might be a good a good play. I'm not 100% positive on that, though, because as we saw over the last couple of years, you outperformed greatly buying, you know, Avalanche, Solana, Ethereum, whatever it was, and the tokens on it. This is because people, you know, a lot of people see that DeFi, NFTs, all this all these, you know, Web3, all these amazing developments will probably succeed, but it's hard to pick which ones are actually going to, you know, exist for the long term. A lot of people would probably compare it to picking, you know, which internet companies were going to exist in the late 90s. So buying the L1 is a way of just having kind of overall exposure to spaces without having to choose specific protocols. It does seem that we are tending away from that now. Yeah, the, the obviously exception to that is when there isn't a layer one token like Arbitrum, for example, right now. And, and your only way of, of really getting positive price exposure to the ecosystem is to accrue the tokens of some of the projects there. So on Arbitrum, for example, we are fans of Dopex. We're fans of Cilium, who have migrated from Tracer and fans of a couple of other other smaller Arbitrum projects that we're slowly building a position in. At the, on the trading side of things, right? So lots of people know this about ReFi. Our portfolio is primarily made of low risk stablecoin farming, some medium risk LPing on, on places like Uniswap and SushiSwap. And then some higher risk plays, which we'll, we'll do via perpetuals or the options markets. Our biggest protocol that we use is DYDX for everything. And I haven't used GMX for any of the trading for the fund, just because the DYDX experience is so stellar. We're seeing a lot of hype now and a lot of GMX forks taking place. What's your view on GMX? Do you think they have scope to grow in this market? And is the market big enough for there to be two or three GMXs or is it a winner-takes-all kind of market in your opinion? Oh, it's a great question. I totally agree with you. Right now, the user experience on DYDX is just so good. It's clean. It's almost, in my opinion, it's better than trading on a Binance or an FTX or a Coinbase. So I'm a huge fan that the user experience is so good on DYDX. GMX seems to employ a really cool model where you know GLP holders make more money the more traders lose, the less traders make. I do like GMX a lot and I love Arbitrum. I think that with Nitro releasing in the next couple of weeks, hopefully the Odyssey starting back up and the inevitable launch of an RB token in the next few months, I believe. I think that, you know, Arbitrum has a lot of space to grow and building, you know, GMX. So therefore, I think also GMX has a lot of space to grow. I do think that there will be room for multiple per protocols in the future. 
but I think that they'll have to innovate in, in one specific area. So for instance, it's totally possible that Quenta and DYDX both exist. Quenta being on optimism, not Arbitrum, but still. But Quenta is probably going to have a value proposition that's more tending towards providing perps on you know stocks and things that aren't available on DYDX. I'm not sure that you know just a perp, perp protocol. There's there's too much. There's room for too many of them. I do believe two or three is completely possible. And we're seeing so many more launch now too, like with GNS and Rage Trade. Rage Trade still just in testnet, but that's on Arbitrum as well. And I, I heard they have some interesting things going on there. So I don't necessarily think I have the ability to just like pick a winner. But at the same time, I would say DYDX is my favorite to use in the same way that Arbitrum is my favorite L2 to use. There's tons of other things that have to go into investment just besides the user experience, but I do think it is a huge... And we share your view on DYDX there. Interestingly, they they moved away from having its smart contract hosted on the Ethereum layer 2 rollup, so on StarkNet, StarkX rather, towards going on the Cosmos ecosystem, so to have their own layer 1 proof-of-state blockchain. Could you talk a little bit about why DYDX have made that decision and whether you think that there are trade-offs and are those trade-offs worth it for, for DYDX and ultimately for its users? So DYDX, I think that there's really, when it comes down to it, one reason that DYDX is going to launch their own application-specific layer one, and that is to truly decentralize the protocol. So when you have a decentralized value, right now, DYDX isn't actually decent. I mean, it is. So the smart contract, your actual execution is decentralized. There's you know no risk in them being able to steal your funds or anything like that, but their order book is hosted on AWS servers, meaning that and and I believe so is their pairing. So like when they actually put two trades together, it's all done on a on a server. This is a big issue. And then also there's another there's another layer of centralization in that StarkX has a centralized sequencer. So there's just one party who orders transactions in a block in in a block and uh, publishes it to the chain. So both of these both of these layers of centralization lead to DYDX needing to comply with you know U.S. regulators. It makes it really difficult for them to return the the revenue that so DYDX takes a fee. That revenue goes back to DYDX, and then there's rumors that some of it goes to Starkware as well. That there's some type of fee split going on there. But anyways, it makes it very hard to return that revenue back to DYDX token holders without the token looking like a security. When they launch their own L1. I believe, well, they, they've announced that the revenue will be going back to validators and to the stakers that stake to those validators. This is a huge, huge, huge plus in the DYDX tokenomics, which currently don't really have any mechanism for value. I, so like basically the order book will be decentralized. The, the, I mean, the, validator, the validating network and block production will be decentralized. This lets them return value to back to their token holders, creating, you know, hopefully driving the value of the token up. There's definitely trade-offs though. So one is they're going to have to figure out how to deal with MEV because there might be an incentive for validators to reorder transactions, meaning traders get not like right now, the centralized sequencer on StarkX acts in the best interest of traders. So you're going to get the best price based on the time you placed your order. Whereas a validator might have more incentive to put your order in later so that you pay a higher price if you're buying an asset. So, and you know, extract MEV from you. This would be extremely negative for that stellar user experience we were just talking about and could lead to traders leaving the product. There are definitely, you know, this is something they're aware of. I've seen Antonio talk about it in Discord, but it doesn't seem like they have a hashed out solution yet. Another issue is that cyber attacks could be a real issue because the order book will be hosted on validator memory. If someone were to place, you know, hundreds of thousands of 
orders in one second, then there's a chance that it would overload validator memory in much the same way that we've seen happen with Solana on big NFT launch. So those are just two of the issues I see. But I do think the DYDX team is, you know, gigabrain, some of the best in the space. And I think they're aware of these issues and we'll figure it out. Interesting. So I think in, in conclusion, and I'm, I'm looking at your research report here, it says uh, a move to its own chain will improve DYDX's decentralization. I agree with you. Trustlessness, like you just talked about, and censorship resistance, which is obviously a big a big topic right now. And as I'm glancing through all your research here, Matt, obviously there's just tons and tons of very, very well articulated and very well educated content, whether it is on credit protocols and real world lending, whether it's on DYDX, like you just said, and it's it's foray into the Cosmos ecosystem, Delta neutral staking, and a whole bunch of other things that you're writing about on a very regular basis. How does a listener stay up to date with your views? How much does it cost? And for sure, for refi, I'll be subscribing after this podcast recording. But for the average user, how do we subscribe to Blockworks Research? So we have our own website at blockworksresearch.com. I believe it's $900 a quarter with a small discount on an annual subscription. The crazy thing is that I'm probably the least smart of all the analysts and what these other, what, what you know, what my coworkers are covering. So stuff like, Synthetics V2X, Frax Finance, Polygon, they are just such gigabrains and going so deep into the space. And then another thing is that we are so, so right now we're very, very focused on, on kind of completely uprooting our data. So we really want to be the best data in the crypto space. Like we look at stuff like Token Terminal and, you know, all these, all these different data providers just often provide extremely incorrect data that could lead to making bad investment decisions, especially with stuff like protocol revenue. So we have been working really hard on making dune boards as well as behind our paywall, having data that's just kind of not accessible anywhere else. Excellent. Obviously, with that data feeds even deeper insights into the, the DeFi space. So like I said, I think we'll, we're definitely keen to follow you, Matt, and follow your research. And if you're, the, in your own words, the least smart in the group, then I think there's a lot of gigabrain stuff being written by yourselves so we'll be sure to follow up on that so a final question for you then is how do you feel the merge will play out both in terms of from a kind of security and execution perspective as well as a price perspective over the over the next month i'm definitely hoping and this is hoping but i'm definitely hoping that the merge plays out just completely efficiently with no problems we see a proof of work we see minor support proof of work chain but you know no one accepts it no one really there's not too much confusion around it which was a big problem back with the BCH and BSV forks. But anyways, I think that, you know, that's my hope that everything plays out well. And most of the validators decide to support a non-censored relayer, which will be hopefully ready at merge time. And, you know, we just see this, we see this flawless merge where, you know, we users have no, have basically have no idea that it even happened. I think that there, if this, you know, if that, if that is the base case, if that is what occurs, we'll see a higher Ethereum price post merge. Unfortunately, I don't necessarily think that that's what's going to happen. And this is completely opinion and not something that you should be, you know, this is definitely not financial advice, probably wrong. But I think that there's going to be a lot of confusion at merge time, whether it be from the proof of work fork or censored relayers. I think that there's going to be a lot of rhetoric on Twitter and in mainstream media that, you know, there's these issues. So while I hope and believe that the merge will play out well, I think that that confusion could lead to, you know, negative price impact on Ethereum. So I'm definitely playing it a little safer and keeping some of my money on the sideline. But hopefully I'm wrong. <laughs> hopefully everything goes flawlessly and Ethereum you know, doubles between now and the end of September. Yeah, well, like you said, there is potentially going to be three Ethereum chains, the proof of work fork 
a potential OFAC ETH supported by Ethereum's biggest governor, which is Circle, basically, and then a proof of stake chain as originally envisaged by Vitalik and the rest of the team. But just to summarize our kind of views going into the merge, we definitely don't want to have too much risk in and around the merge date itself. I think there will be a little bit of price appreciation going into the merge from where we're at today. But you're right, if you can't stomach the risk of an asset potentially going to to zero for a short period of time, even in a transitory manner, then definitely maybe park yourself in fiat for the for the time being. Good place to wrap up then, Matt. We could continue for a very long time, but I think everybody has has an awareness now of how to follow you, how to subscribe to the research. And I look forward to working closely with you over the coming weeks and months as we build out our DeFi kind of relationship together. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me, Huff. It was awesome getting to chat with you again, and hopefully we can make each other some money and provide some investable insights. Let's do it. Thank you so much, Matt. See ya. Thanks. Thanks, Huff. This podcast is hosted by Huff, the lead farmer at Reimagine Finance. Reimagine Finance is a farming as service provider available on the Ethereum and Binance smart chain. Nothing in this podcast can be considered financial advice, and any money invested is purely at your own risk. Nothing in this podcast should be considered an invitation to invest, and listeners should seek independent advice. You can follow us on Twitter, Telegram, and Discord.